Welcome to the CDC Podcast Minisode 10. Co-hosting with me this month is critic Heather Alexandra. All right. Hi. Hello. How are you? For those who may not know, the purpose behind these minisodes is to highlight some games, three apiece, that haven't got a lot of criticism or any criticism at all. The hope being that it will inspire some of you to go out, play them, and write something about them. The games that we highlight will run the gamut from itch.io art games through prestige-level indie games right on through to AAA games that might have slipped through the cracks. So let's get started. Heather? All right. So I guess the first game that I guess we can talk about is Hylix by Mason Lindroth. I don't know how many people really know of Mason's work. Mason has a pretty easily discernible style. It's almost like faux clay. There's some sort of really stark qualities to it. It's a very interesting aesthetic. If people have seen recently the Kickstarter for Jack King Spooner's Dujana, it's like that except not handcrafted. The reason I sort of wanted to talk about Hylix is that I thought it was the, or at least it was my favorite game of last year. And in terms of what it does critically, in terms of what I think is important about it is I think it's incomprehensible. And this is going to come into play when I talk about the second game, but basically Hylix is a JRPG sort of structure, but the world is completely Dada and surrealist, and it feels like you've stepped into like a copy of Guernica, and nothing makes sense, and everybody's dialogue, for the most part, is sort of procedurally generated, and there's a lot of, not nonsense, right, but a lot of things that are hard to comprehend. So you might walk up to someone and they'll say something like, noisome pains will suffer their convexity, prisons will dance of my passion. And that sort of jargon means very little. And I enjoy that sort of aspect to this game because games have a literacy issue, right? We presume that players have an understanding of how systems work, of how structures work, of how certain genres work. And Hylix is a game that has all the trappings of a JRPG and the only sort of safe space, and I wrote about this briefly for Haywire magazine, is the like the menu screen. Like I go into a menu, I know where my inventory is and things like that. But outside of that, everything else is fairly hard to decipher. And I like the idea of an RPG that takes the form and just sort of shows how not fraying at the edges it is, but how much the, at least the center can't hold, right? RPGs are these things that rely a lot on abstractions, and instead of just using those abstractions to represent actions, Hylix decides to be completely abstract in its language and its visuals as well, which I think is really awesome, and I think everybody should play it. Yeah, I've been looking at the, the images they put on Steam, and it's this is like a Salvador Dali decided to make heavy metal magazine issue. Yeah, there's a lot of... <laughs> things that you could say about like what it looks like it's interesting too because when you look at it and I, I only say this just because i like sort of defending the various ways that games can be made it's an rpg maker game and i think don't hold me to this i think ludum dare recently said that they wouldn't take rpg maker games or something like that but when you look at a game like hylix it's fantastic it's this really weird sort of mixture of Gumby and like Terry Gilliam and Yves Tungai and all this. And you can accomplish that sort of stuff using whatever content creation tool you can if you sort of put your mind to it. And it's obvious that Mason did. Is this game like a pure exercise in style 
or is there like a nougat of comprehension behind the surface level incomprehensibility? I don't want to lean too much on the sort of postmodernist critique of a game calling attention to the fact that it's a game. But I think that because Hylix is so generally incomprehensible outside of sort of those familiar gamified spaces of like an option menu or like a battle sequence, you know, like a random battle sequence. I think it's sort of, for me at least, intentionally or unintentionally, points out sort of the inherent difficulty or even the inherent absurdity of sort of using games to try and create real abstractions of things, right? Like I say real abstractions, that's almost oxymoronic, but I mean more along the lines of we want to take systems that have some sort of sense of understandability or something we can comprehend in order to create like a simulacra that we can participate in. But games are really weird. They're just like bunches of math and logic and switches. And the more that you sort of see that that form as regimented as it can be also can sort of be jumbled and pasted together. Anybody who's ever made a game knows that there's all sorts of corners that you cut. It's just that games are weird, <laughs> I, I guess. And, and Hylix reminds me of that so much, not just because of the visual aesthetic or sort of the music, but just because when you look at the things that you are familiar with, you also sort of go, well, these things, I've become familiar with these things that seem normal, but, you know, hand the controller over to some, like play Final Fantasy and hand your, your controller over to somebody who's never played a JRPG and see what the hell happens. And so that's the thing I love about Hylix is that it's, it just reminds me of that whole accessibility issue in a way that is both bizarre but also surprisingly subtle. It's just fun, too. I like things that are fun. If you have anything else to say? Nope. Um, you can we'll wear fine. you wear cellophane and you throw burritos at people. It's awesome. It's awesome. Yeah, and you see like these images of hands, like these grayscale like Mac 2.0 hands. Yeah, so that come up to do things. Yeah, like in, in the battle, in combat, like when you attack, you don't like thrash someone with a sword. Like the animation just plays, and that hand comes up, and it just sort of snaps, right? And has a nice, quick little, like that. You're not fighting monsters with swords or anything. You're fighting weird, amorphous blob creatures using the power of like sound, while also like channeling the power of a demon and learning new abilities by watching the static on your television screen. It's just wonderfully absurd. Moving on to my first game and pretty much going to the direct opposite end of the spectrum (laughs) (laughs) is Pillars from Eternity. Oh, I love Pillars. Like this got like everyone was so excited in March of last year when it came out because nothing else came out in March. And then like a week later, it dropped off everyone's radar. It makes me so worried that the same thing, now that Torment Tides of Numenera is in early access, I'm wondering what's going to happen to that game when it gets a full release. Like if it will sort of just kind of end up in its niche and that's it. Very well publicized niche. Although I sometimes wonder because, because there's an attention economy. Yes. And I was talking about this on Twitter last night. Well, as recording, it's going to be a few days earlier (laughs) by the time it's published about the attention economy and how, that's like the downside of having a year so chock full of great games. Eventually, people are just going to look at it and says, you know what? I have to chuck some of these. And I feel like Pillars, by virtue that it's got that classical thing, because it's got a lot of interesting things going for it. I still haven't made through a, sing- a full playthrough yet. Sure. 
I'm still making my way through, but it's got interesting things of what it's got to do, say, like metaphysics and religion and politics and how the religions relate to politics and the metaphysics of like the eternal soul and what it means for being a person within the structure of, yes, a classical stop and start RPG in the style of Baldur's Gate. And it's wonderful, but it also has got all these like formal elements that's going on because I love how text is coming back as a viable tool in video games. Yes, I love it. Because it always used to be like it's fully text-based or that's just something filling up the menu space. But now we need to scale this castle wall so we can infiltrate through this through one of the turrets that's weakening. Well, we can't do that with the engine because it's all this isometric perspective. I know. Skip to a 2D perspective where you will then make choices that will then do stat-based adjustments. Yep, there's a ravine and then that you need just, to jump across and which way you And then choose. we can just skip and then, and then you either succeed or fail and then we just skip you to the part of the map based on your result. And it says, why did no one think of this before? It's really clean. It's really nice. Another thing I like, and I'm, I'm just going to, because Let's it's a huge game, it. yeah. because I just, is the companions... None of them are romanceable, and I saw this as a negative, and I thought, no, that's great. None of them are romanceable. They are not romantic options. They are also not people you randomly find. Every single one of them has some direct tie to the, your own main mm -hmm. quest. Every single one of them has their own interests and things, but the, they're only with you because their interests tie to your... One guy is with you because you happen to own the fortress, where at the bottom is the biggest special piece of treasure he wants. So he's with you because you own the property. He kind of has to be with you. Another one is with you because another person is looking for, for someone to, who is like the reincarnation of their great leader in the previous generation. And it's part of their religion that they have to go and tell them when they've reincarnated, you've done a good job. The tribe is fine. Except she's having a hard time finding her. And you happen to be able to track souls. Yep. And that's the that, I love that, too, because just in the context of like. One of the nice things about that game that it can do like with really poetic language is because basically one of the conceits of Pillars of Eternity's sort of metaphysics is that reincarnation is a very appreciable thing and that souls are sort of quantifiable. You have the ability to just read people's pasts. And so sometimes you go up to interact with someone and you think, well, I'm going to have a conversation with this person. And instead, your mind sort of flashes back and sees that maybe they were a general on a battlefield or, you know, they were really in love with someone and it's if we're talking about text as this great way to handle things man those parts of the game where you just sort of stumble upon people's past lives they're really gorgeous um some of them are sad some of them are wonderful it's really nice i like that it's sort of the that's the conceit of your character the same way that immortality was the conceit of your character in planescape torment Another thing I really, I know, like, one of those characters is, like, as soon as I read his past, he says, I kind of want to stab you in the throat right now. Mm -hmm. It's like, because I'm reading it, it says, this is a horror story, and this guy's the monster. I want to stab you in the throat. And he's just sitting there at the bar chatting with some other guy. And it just, it brings in sight. Every single person here is just someone, and they have their, gone on their own little D&D-esque adventures. And now they're just some passerby in yours. And it expands the world in a really neat way without having any like effect or influence on your own adventure. But it does force you to recognize without so much work being put into it, that there is this greater world in a very economical way, both artistically and developmentally. Wise. Yes. And the thing is, I actually kind of like the combat because it's a lot cleaner than Baldur's Gate. It is. It's, 
Very. It makes you sure you know, like, all the the little ins and outs. It's got some great UI for, like, this is how big this blast is going to be. This is how you can direct it. You can take your time and figure out the tactics and what, and it'll explain what each little thing does. And I say, oh, I'm actually, yes, it's dense as hell, and it has that accessibility problem. But I'd like to think that after almost 20 years that we've come a little way from having to open this huge manual. And yes, I read through that entire Baldur's Gate manual, (laughs) but you don't have to do it. It's all neatly explained. And it has probably one of the best opening dungeon tutorials I've seen in an RPG like this. It's just like so well done. It teaches you every little thing. If you go through the whole dungeon and I could even see myself, I understand why this, this thing is teaching me. Mm -hmm. I can see how it's doing it. And it's brilliant. I'm really glad that these projects exist and that they end up getting funded in the in the way that they do. I mean, it was a huge deal, right, Obsidian getting all that money uh, mm-hmm. for it. And to see that the end product is as competent as you would expect or or would hope, it's really heartening, right? There's a lot of horror stories out there about things not ending up perfect, right? Nothing's perfect, but you know what I mean, about mismanagement yeah. and things like that, but... Or, like, complete collapses of the horror story. Because the thing is, if the game is bad, okay. Yeah, right. I don't, you, you, made it, you made a bet. You lost. It's a bad game. But you got the game, and I understand that. But with Pillars and, like, Wasteland 2 just coming out and managing to do the things that they set out to do, it's really nice. It's really good to see. I forgot who wrote it, but there was a theorizing on the difference between Western and Eastern indie makers, or rather, like, like the old guard becoming independent sure. and that with westerns they wanted to create something new they wanted to push the boundaries of like design into new territories and see what came out while the eastern uh, uh the guy who did castlevania and Mits- uh, koji igarashi koji igarashi the guy who did mega man and i can never it's hero Bo- you know what i'm gonna butcher the name hirobo sakaguchi yes yeah and what they're doing instead is they're doing the same thing they did before, but they're perfecting it. They're perfecting Castlevania. They're perfecting JRPG. They're perfecting the uh, Mega Man style game. And it's just this different idea. It's like, no, I've, I have what I want. I want to do it, but now I want to do it with full control and to do it on my time scale without some overlord looking over yes. me. And it's just this different. And I feel like in a way, that's kind of what Pillars is. It's like, okay, we got rid of the overlord. And we're doing the same thing that we kind of did back in 1998, but now we get to do it our way. We get to try and perfect it after, or at least see what 20 years can give us. Yeah, you don't really have to be beholden to focus groups or publishers. Well, we found out that's not the case, thanks to backers wanting to input their say wherever. Well, that, that, that's but. sort of true, too, but that's a, that's a whole other weird economic politic thing. It, it's yeah. bizarre. Although at the same time you think at that scale that my $15 has a lot less say over the entire product, but apparently not. Because I've noticed like the smaller funded games, like the things that only need like $10,000, they get a lot less pushback from their backers. I was part a lot less. of a successful Kickstarter. We asked for, I think, like 9000 We got fifteen, And we got very little people who, like when we were doing betas or anything, gave us a lot of trouble. Because if it's small and they're taking interest, I think they're just sort of engaging with a little bit more good faith, possibly. I don't want to presume on people's intentions too much. That's not a kind thing to do necessarily. But I think there's a level of interest there that isn't the same as, you know, 
well, I backed Double Fine Adventure, and I demand this form of adventure game, or whatever. Yeah, this is a kind of a tangent, but that second half was kind of ruined by the backers' entitlement and feedback. It was, yeah, that was kind of tricky. I still like that game, though. I like the first half, the second half. Oh, I absolutely agree. (laughs) You're not wrong. Yeah, we're getting off, so. Pillars of Eternity... There's just so much there that I kind of, although, yeah, if you find the companions early, I, I tried to do most of it solo because I couldn't find the NPC companions early on. That was a headache and a half. There's at least two in the first town. I think there's I found one of them and I ended up doing the castle mission. Oh, okay. Doing the castle infiltration mission with one guy by my side. You can, you can so, get Aloth and a deer, at least. You can get four people within like 20 minutes, but I didn't know where they were. Right. Uh, but yeah, so try and get those people because it makes the dungeon crawling that you have to do like for the early quests a lot easier right off the bat. Just a friendly warning. Yes. Heather, what's your second game? Okay, so this is another weird one. It's Memories of a Broken Dimension by, um, I don't know if you say XRA or XRA, but it's been greenlit on Steam. There's a prototype that you can play from 2012. That is how I know the game. For a while, you could not find this prototype. It wasn't on the website for it. It just sort of vanished, which made it all the more sort of alluring. Explaining memories of a broken dimension is very difficult. So I'll just sort of try and give a brief walkthrough of sort of what occurs. This is the experience that most players will have. You'll boot up the game. You'll be brought to what is essentially a terminal or directory, sort of like a DOS boot up screen. And it's implicitly tied to like, oh, you're managing satellites or something, and there are all these strange commands and sort of data overflows, and if you put in one command, the screen will scroll and go insane. And But you finally sort of make your way through these commands enough that it lets you sort of dive into what is essentially abstracted data space. And the form that takes is basically almost static, like not the same like white noise type of static, but... Every, visual static. Yeah, everything's sort of really, it's right there in the title, it's broken, right? And all you're sort of doing is trying to look at these sort of land masses of sort of sharded geometry and trying to look at them at the right perspective so that you can solidify them in order to sort of ascend upwards. And for most people, the game will probably end with a crash. And and that's sort of, I, I think it's intentional. I don't know if it's like a hard crash, but it does like its own fake blue screen thing. Essentially, it's just you moving into this weird shadow data realm and trying to squeeze out whatever sense of tangibility that you can, which I wanted to talk about this paired up with Hylix because it's just another example of, okay, if Hylix is about sort of the incomprehensibility or the other absurdity of a certain genre. Memories of a Broken Dimension makes me think about sort of the very fragile nature of digital space. And this is clear again, not to be like, oh, go back to the game dev well, but if you're making a space and like making sure the seams on all of your textures go together correctly, making sure that you can't just walk through this rock, digital spaces have all of these potential ways to wither and fall apart and memories of a broken dimension just sort of really makes me think of that and i think that if you're interested in sort of the spatial nature of games which is pretty much built into every game ever with all the good and bad that that entails playing this game is worth it it's very short 
you'll play it for like 30 minutes and I think it will stay with you though. I think just walking through a howling maelstrom of just shattered geometric shards, it's one of the most visually compelling things I've ever experienced while playing games. If I may make an attempt at describing its visual... Oh gosh, go for it. (laughs) It's like the Matrix code simulation geometry intersected with the unfinished swan. That's a fair sort of way to to explain it, I suppose. And the thing is just, you're just trying to find the spaces that you can sort of make quote-unquote real, right? Is it pure geometry? Is there any other, like, elements to this? Like, pure navigation of geometry? Basically, yes. There's no no data monster is going to show up and try and fight you, right? You know, it's just, you're in... you're caught in this Audio weird bombs? void. No, nothing. It's just it's just there. Because it's labeled as horror. So is this like existential spatial horror? Potentially. The general context is just like there's some sort of satellite monitoring something that has gone offline. You have to dive into data. It's not even contextualized this well. I'm sort of coloring it with my own interpretations of what I've experienced. And it's just something bad has happened. Something absolutely bad has happened to whatever these satellites are encircling maybe it's earth maybe it's whatever but something like has fundamentally caused catastrophic sort of shifts and you just need to fix what you can it's just that horror label intrigues me because your description of it sounds more like dear esther or something contemplative and yet that horror label kind of sticks something like there's something behind the facade there's an audit component to it so like that game when you move around it's a lot of garbled noise like that noise you get when you're screwing up the connection of an hdmi cable or something right that sort of warping sound and i I think that can be very oppressive right pushing down on you all of this noise feels like an aesthetic like most critics you and i definitely included are trained in like narrative criticism Mm -hmm literary, filmic, or theater, whatever other background, and it always seems to be based into narrative structure and how that is expressed through the specific formal components. But one thing that few critics seem to be well, and to my mind, like only Zolani and Lana even come close to being any good at this, is pure aesthetics. Okay, yeah, that sort of feel, yeah, yeah. Pure aesthetic criticism, which is... The thing is, when you get a game that feels almost purely fall into that, it's like, I do feel helpless against it because it's like I don't have the necessary skill or training to, to criticize this properly. That's exciting, though, isn't it? It's sort of a fun challenge to sort of walk into a space or a game that really isn't within your background. Well, there's a difference between not being with background and being completely absence of the tools with which to work with. Sure. It, which is kind of why I really like that you brought this game on here because I hope someone has the tools and can actually discuss this. Yeah. I mean, people want context, right? But memories of a broken dimension tends to fundamentally push back against that desire for context. It just sort of wants to place you in this space. Well, I think it does have a context. It's just it's not a narrative context, which is what we're so used to. It's an aesthetic one. Yep. It's it's an aesthetic context. It's sort of a sensory context. There's a real sort of feel to the world around you, ephemeral as it is, right? There's something... It reminds me of Nissance, but even that had, like, 
very minimal yeah. narrative context mm-hmm. that you could attach it into a allegorical sense. Sure. The way your description of it seems that this eschews that into something even more abstract. I just and more pure emotional. I want to see where it goes. This is a game that has been on my. Is it finished? I, I, it's not up on Steam. Only way that I've encountered it is through this demo That's version that you can get on Itch. There's never been like anything where it's here we are. We've we, you know we put it out on a distribution platform. Here we are. We finished it. It's on our website. It just sort of exists in the ether of the internet as just this weird oddity. And maybe it never will be anything more than that. And I think that's sort of okay. Oh, it definitely is. Even the visuals look really beautiful oh, yeah. in their own stylistics type. Check it out. Anyway, we got to move on to my second game, yeah. which, which, while abstract, is far more coherent. <laughs> I, I love the contrast you and I are coming here. It's uh, the iOS Android game Prune. Okay, yeah. I've only heard about this because it showed up on as like the best game of the year from Time Magazine or some other mainstream publication. I hadn't heard about it before. So, of course, I says, all right, let's see. Oh, two bucks? Sure, let's play it. And it is just this gorgeous zen-like... Well, you're sort of swiping the screen and everything's sort of growing. Bon- it's, it's like a bonsai simulator. And yeah, there are puzzles where you have to make it grow in a certain way to get to shafts of light that are being blocked out and introduce various elements. Like there's a red circle that will poison the tree if, if it touches it, so you have to grow around them. And there are other little blue lights that will help accelerate the growth of this tree. And you have to be careful because as the tree grows outward, it'll also grow thicker. So it could, of course, bump up against one of those things. If it hits a wall, tree branches will break off. Every time you cut or a tree branch breaks off, it then sends that through the growth of the rest of the tree. And it's this, and it's just this beautiful, serene... It feels like you're interacting with nature through the touchscreen. And I don't use that bonsai thing like liberally because you are artists trying to cut this off to for a goal, but it feels like like there's an artistry to cutting the tree, even if you are trying to shape it. In, because well, you are trying to shape it, and that's the artistry. Yeah. Even if it is towards a goal, and just the act of swiping to cut, like few games, I feel like get the inherent touchscreens aesthetics and thematic capabilities through their actual actions well, because this game is essentially Fruit Ninja. It uses the exact same mechanics, except for frantic murdering of fruit. It's very slow, deliberate swipes of of cutting and shaping a tree to be the best growth that it can achieve in flower. And there's about as much narrative as there is in flower. Mm -hmm. It's got a similar, like, thematic and structural arc without any specific narrative points that you can you can like go to okay this is how the story goes the environment sort of advance a thematic idea from like open plains and windy steps you then okay now you're at the bottom of a canyon now they're okay these sections of levels have sort of an urban qualities and this one has gears and chopping things of, in, of industry and eventually you just come back to that open plain and you'd have to cut it so the tree can reach the stars 
And there is, like, this very celestial thematic point going on. Like, it's not... There's a sort of communion that occurs, right? Like, when you get to the end of every level, sort of the flowers come off the tree and sort of go up into the sky towards those stars, right? There's this sort of idea... And then of... one star, like, blinks into existence mm-hmm. after every level. And some of them fill in. If you get, like, the spe- certain levels have, like, the special blue flowers, which will make the tree flower blue... It's like a side option, and then the a, another star will fill in. And then there are these lines that will be created. So it's like you're filling in constellations by making nature grow. Like there's a connection between the ground world and the celestial heavenly world. Yeah, the more you sort of build up towards that apex and you sort of reach towards the stars, it's nice. And I do enjoy the fact that you brought up the comparison to a game like Fruit Ninja, which basically has the same way of interaction via just sort of swipe swiping, right? But it swipe to cut. It does it for context is king, right? It just changes everything. Mm-hmm. It's so nice. I wish I knew more about Eastern philosophy so I could like connect Prune's aesthetics to that because I feel that's where it's coming sure. from. Because this isn't like Western ideals of like enlightenment or even pl- from the Platonic schools. This is something that I recognize, but I don't know about. I mean, I only know so much about bonsai culture, and it's just mostly contemplation and this idea of pleasant effort, right? Sort of growing this thing and taking pleasure in the growth of a thing and sort of the care of the thing, right? And that's sort of, and that's present in this game to a certain extent, certainly. And I just feel like there could also be like further expression of like a Taoist philosophy or a Shintoist philosophy based on these connections, sure. but I don't know enough about those specifics to make that declaration. Although if someone does, please write something in that respect, because yes, it's a mobile game, but who cares? It's it's brilliant. Yeah. It's beautiful. We need criticism from those vectors, too. Not to get off on that whole tangent, yeah. but it's like one of those big gaps that we have. I've East and West, perp- huge gap when it comes to criticism. As well as, like, the mobile, because, like, how often do mobile games get talked about? I mean, now that I have a new tablet, I've been purposefully trying to close that gap for myself. Sure. All right, let's finish off with your third game. Oh, gosh, my third game is crazy. It's Jet Set Radio. Jet Grind Radio, as it is also called. I thought that was the sequel. Well, so... Ah, complicated game history incoming. Yeah. So, Jet Set Radio. It's called Jet Set Radio in Japan. Right. It's called Jet Grind Radio in America. Now, I don't know the full reasoning behind that. And I actually would be curious because I don't know as much about European releases as I should. But I imagine that it's probably Jet Set Radio there as well. For those of you who are unaware, it's the cell shaded game. This is like one of the first to really get it out to the public. I mean, this is a game from 2000. So, you know. You're not having a game like, I don't know, what's another good example? Wind Waker, right? So Wind Waker has that same cel-shaded touch, but that's 2002 or so, right? So this is a Dreamcast-era game that does cel-shading to great effect in order to emphasize the connection between... So you're part of basically a rollerblade gang in a weird sort of authoritarian Tokyo stand-in. And you go around just sort of spraying tags in territory. And there's pros and cons to the way the game formulates why you do that. But the idea is just, I like the way that this game, first off, it's fun. It has an amazing soundtrack. It's all this acid, jazz, crazy, punk, awesome stuff. But the connection between the the visual design to sort of the action that you are doing is really nice. So it's just, 
this is a game about the proliferation of art in a space. Therefore, let's make the game sort of have a certain artistry of its own. And it's, it's wonderful. Again, I, like every time I'm talking about these games, I'm just like, it's great, but it is. Check around radio is a good time. And you have all those anti-authoritarian themes going on in the background. Right, which is fine in the context of street art, but I wish that street art as represented in games sort of got the communal aspect of that action, of that art a little... I wish it sort of grasped that a little better. In this game, you know, you're tagging enemy... I mean, enemy, right? Just different gangs. You're going into their territory and tagging your own and then also running away from cops and stuff. I mean, it's silly, it's stylized and cartoonish, but the way that we contextualize art, putting art in a space, still has to be contextualized in games because they're spatial and highly competitive, has to be contextualized through this notion of, I'm going to dominate territory, I'm going to undermine some authority, when honestly, I'm not saying that it needed to be softer, this isn't some sort of weird Jekyll Radio version of, oh, 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 I wish I could talk to the monsters, (laughs) um... It's just more that there's opportunities with games like this and maybe not jet set radio, jet grind radio in the sense that I think it's cartoonishness is endearing. But most of the time when you have graffiti in a game, it's in the context of sort of its illegality as opposed to its artistry, which is a bummer. Although the game does allow you to create your own tags, which is absolutely fantastic and more games about art should explicitly also allow players to just create the art. And and a lot of them fail to do so. But this one doesn't. And then it got really weird. It eventually became Grind Radio Future, and that became more about moving through space. Not to a Tony Hawk sort of scale, but there was a lot more emphasis on tricks, and the emphasis on art sort of went away. And that was sort of unfortunate. So it's a series that I love. You know, I love its energy. It has an amazing zeal to it, a very tangible thirst for expression but it also is a game that it's a big at the time at least it was a big ip owned by sega and there are downsides to being a big ip that over time what you were sort of erodes right and doesn't and you sort of get further and further from from your roots i would love to see a stronger return to this game yeah it was from that era where i missed a lot of games it was a dreamcast game originally Mm -hmm. wasn't it and that's my jam. <laughs> Absolutely. Gosh, I love I love the Dreamcast so much. Yeah, we got I got to do like a, a I don't know, like a historical version of this where I force the other person to pick three games pre-2000 and I do the same. Oh, I could do that. Like even well-known games that just well, they're old so that we don't write about them or we don't like write dedicated criticism about them. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you write what you know, right? So <laughs> a lot of us grew up and sort of games came into their whole... I mean, I was playing Super Nintendo and all of that, but I mean, I really started to understand games as these real, more extant things by the time the sixth console generation came about. And because that's also... You're getting into a lot stranger ways of interaction. That's when you finally start to get online play outside of PC and other things. Um, And that seems like a small thing, but those small affectations build up. And I I think that 
two things happen. We focus on sixth generation or that era because we know it and we also do it because there was a lot of stuff going on. There was a lot of weird stuff. A game like Jet Set Radio doesn't necessarily get made today. Not unless, in the way it does. Unless the creator wants to go to Kickstarter right? and make something that is met, let TV or something. Yeah, right. Like, and, everything but name. And, and it's unfortunate that that's the model, but it is. My third game is sort of in that vein mm-hmm. because I'm using the, the title that I'm going to talk about as a Schenectady for the entire jam. And it's called Hoppy Store, which is the game that managed to grab my attention the most, mainly because I got through most of the puzzles and couldn't finish them. And it's a part of last month's Mist Jam. Okay. Oh, sure. We, where you take Mist as, like, the inspiration, and then you just, I don't remember if it was 24 or 48 hours, and you just create something in, in that vein. And I and I played through a few of them, and this is the one that really caught me, because it's a single room of a hobby called the Hobby Store, and with the only instruction is, everything in here has a purpose. And, of course, there are number codes to open various desk drawers, which will give you symbols, which will open the safe at the back. But then you see, like, oh, here's a dart board with three darts in it. That must correspond to this thing that needs a three-number code. I wonder how this works out, which order they go in. There's uh, a, a single die sitting on a green piece of paper, and you got to figure out by unraveling the die how this works out because there's a clue in another drawer. There's a calendar on some part. There's a clock that isn't working. And there is a chess set, which I am damn sure has something to do with the eight-numbered code, and I still can't figure it out after a month of work. (laughs) So, yes, it's exactly like the original Myst in that regard. And it's got that that same, this looks like a real object, but because everything is stationary, it looks real enough, even if it is fake CGI. And it's got the same Myst thing where you have to click around like it's hypercard and i love them and managed to capture that feel of the original miss game i have absolutely no idea if there's anything else going for it other than just throwing a bunch of our assets into these these logic and numerable hide the clue type puzzles that mist got known for and yeah there are other things where you're exploring like isolated spaces using the same click forward motion and i tried some of the other games and some of them have some like really the people there really went with the visuals and tried to expand simply beyond like the rock and in like proto-industrial imagery that Mist was so famous for. You got like some cartoony ones. You got some like fantasy-looking ones. You got a few pixelated well, there's, ones. Um, what I know that jam sort of. There's one called Mead Runner, which is really fun-looking. I remember that one. I only played a little bit of it of, of some of those jam games. I, I should play more jam games, but. Oh, it's just Mist was my jam. That's kind of why oh, there I you go. This. Of course, there is one that's like an arcade game where you have to balance between the number of red pages. It's a character is just falling through the stars, and like hundreds of these different colored pages got up. But if you get too many blue or too many red, you lose. So you have to balance how many of them you're grabbing. And it's just this. It's like Downwell in that respect. You just keep falling, and you can move left and right, and these pages keep coming up. It's really interesting <laughs> that we're sort of returning to Mist in a lot of ways. Let's make no mistake, Mist last for a long time it had what four or five sequels the last one was like in the it was it was end of age and had an mmo yep and it had an era which that's so strange too that that was a thing so it was for a while this it was so omnipresent well the the original was definitely omnipresent because it was the first cd game and everyone wanted to justify getting cd drives for the computers but 
the thing is, if I can go a little adventure game yeah, go historical, for it. historical here, is that Mist wasn't influential until like the latter half of the previous decade. It like wasn't at least not in the adventure game genre. Yeah, sure in the open world action genre you could probably see some people taking environmental story cues how it like put something in the environment and that was how to open the lock. But uh, that I think yeah. that's where Thief and Deus Ex got their ideas from. Possibly I don't know their if they were influenced, but it seems like they could have been. But it's like actual mist-style games, like the style that we think of, like now Year Walk or Mind of Thesaurus or, oh god, what the hell, Ether One. These are all mist-style adventure games where you're exploring this weird, fantastical, cobbled-together space while getting a story through voiceovers or audio audio logs. The Magic Circle is a mist-like. Yes. Because of how it's constructed. It's got some other things piled onto it, but it's got the same basis of that. And it's only now that, okay, we have the LucasArts model, because I guess it's easier to make in in Unity and the like, we got the Mist-style game coming back and actually creating all these indie games as, as its descendants. And the idea that, all right, let's go back to the original and see what we what more we can mine out in 48 hours. Here is, how many is it, 37 games? Oh, gosh. Like, something like that? I don't know. I just keep on thinking of Riven because I remember that the box literally said Riven, the sequel to Mist. I got nowhere in that game. Oh, Riven's not... Because the puzzles were much yeah, harder. Yeah, no thanks. Well, I say no thanks, but Riven's still... Yeah, it's worth playing, but Mist is the one. And it's that funny thing is that when you look back and think differently on older games, not just as a reflection to make new ones, but actually think back on the older games. Like, I remember with my dad, sitting on his lap as we tried to figure this out, big new pad of paper there to create maps, yep. and we always ended up drawing off the thing because we didn't start in the center. We thought it was going to go in one direction, it went in the other, and we had ended up having two pages stuck together. Of all people, I played it with my grandmother. <laughs> like She was like, I'm yeah. totally going to play this game, and I was fascinated, and it, it was great. At one point, you know the sound puzzle? We actually had to get a tape recorder for that. Oh, yeah? We got it. We put it next to the speakers, recorded the sound, went back to say, okay, which sound is it? Shh, nope, not that. Oh, Let me gosh. just rewind, play, just to match it up because we weren't that good at it. He wasn't a gamer, and I was eight or something like that. It took us months, maybe a full year to get through it. And then he said, like, one day I decided, okay, I think I'll go back. Six hours later, I finished hey. it. No walkthrough, nothing. All right. big, and it was like, wow, it just changes your conception of it. It's so much smaller than I remember. And yet, none of that imagination, none of that like expansiveness was really cut out in my memory. And I feel like all these creators could find something in a game that old is worth looking at these little yeah. jam indie games. Especially since one guy apparently went to his office and just took pictures. Oh, yeah. And connected, and connected them in a Mist-style hypercard game. Good. Which I found like that was such an interesting way to do it. God, that island... New generation's going to maybe have their own island with the witness, maybe, but, you know, the, the oh, island yeah. from Mist. I'm not here to shit on the witness, pardon my language, but there's a surrealness to the island on Mist that the witness fails to capture. It's really hard to explain. You just sort of have to experience it. That's a lovely place to end. I suppose. <laughs> <laughs>
is oh, I always forget to ask my guests this, but is there any place they can find you or or fund you or whatever? Oh yes, pimp your project. I write for websites, so that's a thing I do. If you're interested in that, you can just look up my name, Heather Alexandra. I have a Twitter. It's at transgamerthink. My website is transgamerthoughts.com. I have a Patreon. I do I do video crit, so I do. Right now, it's alternating once a month. It's a critical video, and then the other month, I alternate. It's a retro review. So I did an extended crit of Fallout 4 in January, and I just today put out a throwback review of Skygunner, which was a game for the PlayStation 2. So I jump between critic and reviewer, even though that line should be much thinner than than we make it. If you're interested in that, check out the videos if you like them a lot there's a patreon it's modest i'm not patreon's not to supplement my income it's just to make sure that i can have sustainability to make these videos and to have people involved in the process i just want to do my best work for you and having direct feedback and direct contribution from people makes it easier for me to produce the work that i think people will like and i think that people deserve and if you like this podcast, please find us and rate us on iTunes. Give us a five-star rating. Tell us what you enjoy. Tell me what needs to be fixed, both for these mini-sodes and the main interviews, whatever you've... Give me your feedback. And if you like this project and all the other projects we have on Critical Distance, please consider funding our Patreon. You can find it at patreon.com slash critdistance. Yeah, please do. Crit, crit Distance is super important. It's been lovely talking to you. Yeah. See you next month, Paul. Bye.